Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's week one of season two of The Pick List. We're back. We are back with a bang. How are you? Yeah, great, thank you. And we've even seen each other face to face, which is uh, for the first time this year over the summer, which was a delight. Nice brunch. Yes, indeed. So we went to Colour Coats, didn't we? And had a lovely brunch there um, by the seaside. So that was very nice indeed. Hoping to do a little bit more often in the coming months than we have been able to do. <laughs> I've moved up here to the northeast and I've, I think, seen you less than I saw you when I was back in London. So um, hopefully that changes soon. We might even get a face-to-face recording done, you never know. But what it did do was allowed us to plan the next season, which we've just launched, and we've got 14 amazing episodes planned, haven't we? Yes, we do. Really exciting guests, um, including this week's guest, um, Murray King, who's joining us from New Zealand. So it's really exciting for us to broaden our geographical reach as well. And Murray is a brilliant guest. He brought two fantastic articles um, that really made us look at the food industry through a sort of Kiwi lens um, that we wouldn't normally be doing. I loved it. Should we start the show? Murray, welcome to the show. We're so thrilled to have you with us. Could you perhaps briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to the feed industry? Um, hi, guys. Hey, real pleasure to be here. I'm connected right at the beginning of the food industry, I guess. I'm a farmer um, at heart, but I'm reasonably easily bored, so um, stray into other areas. And so uh, we're involved in, in, in selling uh, A2 liquid milk to local processors for local delivery into the cafe trade, but also uh, into making ice cream, A2 ice cream, uh, which we sell into or around New Zealand, Australia, uh, and Southeast Asia at this stage. So that's me, but also heavily embedded right at the beginning of the food chain around um, some non executive directorship roles, which I have. Uh, one is a, a large Research Institute, uh, which is heavily involved in aquaculture, uh, marine and freshwater monitoring and food um, data analytics and and such like. And also another company, LIC, which is uh, New Zealand's biggest genetics or bovine genetics and agri-tech company. So um, we're really responsible for generating the next generation of livestock um, uh, for the industry. Fantastic. And I, and I think that sort of breadth of interest, the fact that you're quite easily bored, I think it's, it is reflected in the articles that you've chosen for us as well. Um, really exciting uh, to, to get a slightly different perspective from a different part of the world for us as well. So you have chosen two articles that are particularly relevant in a kind of New Zealand and I think to an extent Australian context as well. So why don't you tell us about the first article you have picked for us? Okay, so the first one is from New Zealand Food Technology News. But the reason I chose this is because it's Maori Language Week here in New Zealand this week. And this relates to uh, a a group of Maori uh, Maori company up in the Bay of Plenty 
who have teamed up with a company in the Waikato called Liga uh, to extract um, bioactives um, from horticultural waste effectively, uh, particularly looking at the likes of kiwifruit and, um, and avocados. And why I think that's interesting at the moment is because with the COVID thing, people are looking at um, you know, more ways of, or better ways of looking after their health. And obviously a key part of that is what they eat. And so um, these clever people and uh, that company uh, called Liga uh, is led by some pretty significant um, scientific people in, in this country and also a chap, um, Sir James Wallace, who's made a small fortune out of dealing with waste, mainly around the meat industry um, over his career. And what they're looking at doing is just um, extracting these biopolymers and things and, um, and utilising them for, um, I guess, as um, ingredients and in, in other uh, nutraceuticals and things. Um, and the reason I think it's also important that you, the link with the Maori here is that they really uh, have a really close connection with the land and the environment and, uh, and they take a really long-term view. And so the strategic plan of one of the local iwi here, the Wakatu iwi, is that it's a 300-year strategy they look at. So, you know, they're, they're here for the long haul and so they're really about protecting the environment. And there's a thing called tataiao, which is um, around looking after the natural world. Uh, and that has actually been linked in with uh, the new strategy, um, Fit for a Better World, which has been put together by the Primary Sector Council of New Zealand. Uh, and that's looking about how we actually uh, improve uh, everything we do in agribusiness uh, and also how we extract a little bit more value uh, around the world. Because one of the challenges we have here in NZ is that uh, you know we're only 5 million people and yet we produce enough food to, to, to feed 40. Um, it's really important that we just make sure that we are uh, differentiating ourselves and making sure that we can do it in such a way which is respectful for the environment and, and done in a way which people are prepared to pay a premium for. And certainly in a post-COVID world, it seems to be what people are really looking for. The 300-year plan, which sounds amazing, although um, the strategic plans I do, you know, if I'm lucky, it's five years, so 300 sounds uh, sounds huge. How easy is it to get alignment across industry groups that are maybe more on a, a trader mentality to a group, as you say, the Maoris, who are looking for a more, I guess, long-term view to protect their, their the land that belongs to them? Um, I, I think that this is something which in the last, uh, say, five or so years is something which has become more apparent and it's grown out of a, a number of initiatives. The, the biggest one is a thing called uh, the Tahono movement, which has uh, been put together by senior agribusiness leaders, uh, chief executives, chairs, uh, and what they've been doing is taking all those people across to Stanford uh, and California, Silicon Valley, uh, into a, a deep immersion boot camp for a week. Uh, and just looking at how actually we can do things differently as a country and how we can actually really play upon our natural resources and our point of difference, really. Because at the end of the day, um, we're stuck down here in the bottom of the South Pacific. We've got to export everything. So we've got to do it in a certain way, in a way which is actually going to um, generate better revenue and better return back for our country, ultimately. Absolutely. And I, I thought it just that whole topic of using agri-food waste streams in a way that... Um, adds value. I think it's, it's such a, a live topic. I think 
in many countries um, at the moment. So I was very interested to see um, that there is that focus on, on using the materials and, and really trying to find ways to, to do something innovative with them. As you say, using some of the compounds to perhaps um, produce more, more functional foods or use them as ingredients in those foods. But I guess, you know, from a kind of biopolymer perspective, the whole kind of sustainable packaging um, debate is, is obviously very live still as well. So it seems like there's, um, there's a lot of potential here to um to really do something quite innovative with these waste streams yeah absolutely and uh you know um maori agribusiness is so big as well and getting bigger so you know they're an important part of the of the agricultural sector so uh, julia what's your first pick this week so my first pick this week is about PepsiCo and a new sleep-inducing beverage that they're launching. Um, this has been reported quite widely. Um, the article I have picked is from Fast Company, and it's called PepsiCo Wants to Help the Caffeinated Masses Get Better Sleep with Its New Relaxation Drink. Um, the drink in question is called Driftwell. It comes in a blackberry lavender flavor, and it contains magnesium and a compound called L-theanine, which is also found in green tea. This is a North American launch at this stage, uh, due to go on sale online in December, and then a retail rollout to follow in early 2021. There are three things that I thought were really interesting about this launch. The first is the focus on relaxation and sleep. That has been a growing category for some time, but interest in it has been boosted significantly by COVID, which has caused stress, anxiety levels, insomnia to spike. I mean, people talk about coronasomnia um, as, a, as a phenomenon. Um, there's a PepsiCo executive, Emily Silver, who's quoted in this article, and she makes clear the project did start before COVID, but of course, it's now very well-timed, really speaks to um, the mood um, at the moment. It's a very timely entry. The second thing that I thought was interesting is the fact that this is a relaxation-focused functional product that's not made with CBD. Because we have seen so many launches with CBD that I think there's almost a tendency to think that if you want to play in that kind of relaxation and stress relief category and you want to do more than a slightly soothing tea, then CBD is really your go-to. Not so here. This is the first time they've made any kind of hard functional claim on pack about any of their products. So clearly getting this right and doing this with an ingredient that they feel comfortable with was absolutely important. Um, and there's another article, which I'll link in the show notes as well from CNBC, where they do sort of allude to some of the regulatory uncertainty surrounding CBD and why that may put off some big food and drink companies from entering that arena at this stage. And again, the PepsiCo executive, Emily Silver, who was also quoted in the um, Fast Company article, she says in the CNBC piece rather pointedly, from a scientific and regulatory perspective, we feel really good about making that claim around L-theanine. Specifically, we have safety in clinical data to prove that it works. Third and final thing that I liked about the story is the fact that this product came out of an internal incubator program. Um, this is a program that was started by their CEO last year, and it basically involves a 
competition where PepsiCo employees come up with ideas for new products and the winner is then made and turned into a product that's launched. And Driftwell is the first product to come out of this program and it's also the fastest new product to ever come out of PepsiCo, which I really like. I think that's impressive in its own right. But I thought it was also interesting because we hear a lot about big corporates running incubator programs with startups. But initiatives like this show that there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit to be tapped from your own employees too. You don't always need to kind of be partnering with an um, external partner. Murray, what did you make of it? And is that whole sort of debate around functional foods related to stress, anxiety, relaxation, is that a big topic in New Zealand as well? I think it is. And once again, we're, we're seeing, you know, people trying to look after their health better, uh, which is which is great. Um, when I first read this, maybe I'd had too many coffees um, and I misread it. And I thought, why are they trying to uh, have a Coke drink, which actually, uh, or, or a Pepsi drink, I should say, a cola drink, which uh, I'll get it, get it right eventually, a cola drink, which then puts you to sleep. But that wasn't the case at all. And then when I had another look at it, it's actually water. So um, yeah, it's another way of selling water, which I think is innovative. Um, and if people want to buy it, um, and the other thing, no sugar, no added um, carbohydrates, some other things, which, you know, once again, more functional food, people are trying to differentiate. And if they're prepared to pay for it and they want it, sell it to them. I, I was interested by the article as well in the fact that, and, and your comments at the end, Julie, about being an incubator project. This is a sort of brand you would see from a startup and seeing it from a, a, a massive FMCG like PepsiCo. I, I wonder if the type of people that would normally buy health type products would actually I don't know is there a trust issue that you know you've got such a huge company here selling something that's quite niche at the beginning is it something that allows it to get exposure to the masses but then is the also flip side if this was on a sub brand maybe not tagged as PepsiCo would people maybe buy into it quicker I'm just thinking that I don't know like the UK Innocent Smoothies brand before their takeover people had that level of buying because it felt small uh, I guess it's like Ben and Jerry's before they, they sold to Unilever. Would people want to jump on the back of that quicker because it, it felt small, it felt niche, but then they don't have the, the, the exposure in the channels that, that, that PepsiCo would? I think it's interesting that they've kept it quite separate from the overall PepsiCo brand. Um, so I, I'm not sure that it would be a barrier because, you know, we are making that association and lots of the articles that, that have um, covered this make the association with Cola and with, um, with Pepsi because of the parent company. And you can make all sorts of funny little puns about, you know, a makeup of caffeinated beverages is now trying to sort of come out with something that, you know, helps you with your over-caffeination possibly. Um, but I think when you, look, so when you look at the branding and when you look at the proposition on shelf in isolation, I'm not sure that would be a problem. Um, so I'd, um, I think it's really going to come down to um, the functionality of, of the drink. I think if, if a drink like that can deliver on what consumers are looking for, then um, I, I don't think having a big parent company uh, would, would be a, a hindrance at all. Laura, what's your first pick for us this week? Uh, my first pick 
This week is from the New York Times and this is seven ways the pandemic has changed how we shop for food. And I know we've seen a lot of these articles over the last uh, six months or so. Um, but what I really liked about this article, it's, um, it not only gave it the, the seven uh, things that are sticking in the States, but it also gave it a nice little lead in with some um, good sound bites from CEOs of uh, different multiple retailers in the US. Um, it talks about how the trends have been turbocharged um, over the pandemic and it gives a, a nice quote that over the um, uh, first month of the pandemic it's seen eight years worth of growth that were predicted in the US retail uh, category and I guess it also talks about um, the fact that the US is so food service focused and the fact that US consumers have gone back into retail obviously in this huge way and, and people are um, as a result moving into more complex cooking and they feel um in this article that a lot of that is going to stick and people aren't going to just default back into eating out of home that some of these new trends because they've now been embedded over six months uh, will, will uh, maintain some of the um, seven pieces that it picks out throughout the article are things that we've, we know a lot about, you know, the, the shift to online we know is happening, consumer uh, choice and the rationalisation of ranges and the move into frozen are mentioned. But there's four that I wanted to really pick out and, and chat about. Um, first of all, fewer trips. And it talks in the article about people are getting better at putting um, lists together and being better planned in um, their food shopping throughout the week. Uh, and people go with more of a purpose. And I think that's really interesting and something that, that, that the article saying it's probably going to stick going forwards. Um, and people are, you know, rather than going three times a week to the supermarket, they're going once and they feel that that's going to, I guess, protect them from uh, potential exposure to, to the virus. Secondly, it talks in the article about the trends is orange is the new snack food, which was really interesting and something we, we definitely haven't touched on before in the in our shows. Um, and it talks in the US that produce category is up 11 percent. Uh, and in May alone, oranges were up 73 percent and the whole natural movement um is gaining momentum all the time and people getting more into produce rather than, than processed snack food. Um, it, it is seeing real growth in the US, which I think is really, really interesting. Uh, the third thing I wanted to pull out was about uh, redrawing the store. And this is something that, again, I guess will take a little while to, to penetrate into the market. But this is around uh, some retailers uh, trialing wider aisles, different sanitation options, making sure that the aisles were less crowded. Um, and it gives an example of Walmart. They've uh, trialing this open plaza for payment and the whole sort of self-check. We know self-check can be quite confined and, and um, quite short of space. Uh, but, but some of the retailers are looking how they can do that differently. And it also gives the example of Publix, the big uh, Florida retailer, um, changing their one-way system, which that, that they've had for a while and, and, and they're getting rid of that. The third thing that I think, again, is really interesting that I'm keen to chat to, to you both about is a, a local and local being a bigger lure. Um, locally produced food uh, has seen growth and waiting lists for community-supported ag subs ag subscriptions have seen growth 
Um, and it talks about how chefs in the food service market are now producing meal kits and how locally grown selling um, routes have, uh, have maintained. And this is not only about um, supporting local communities, and it gives a great soundbite in the article about the importance of supporting local that have helped through the pandemic, but also that health aspect too and how essential that is. What are your thoughts on that? Because the article gives a huge amount. And Murray, if I, if I can come to you first, particularly on maybe local and produce, are these things that the Kiwis are doing, and I feel doing already, but doing more in the light of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, look, I, 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 I sympathise with all of these points. I, th- I've, I found it fascinating, actually. And, uh, and I think they're, they're really points that actually I think will apply anywhere. Um, as you've said, uh, Laura, you know, um, people are doing things quite differently. Uh, the fruit thing's really interesting, isn't it? The oranges. So um, yeah. people once again are trying to look after themselves better and they think that if they can improve their immunity in one way or another, more vitamin C is a good thing. So we're seeing that here, actually, uh, down here in New Zealand with, with Zespri, uh, you know, kiwi fruit, gold kiwi fruit in particular, the marketing company, you know, can't sell enough of the stuff, um, particularly into Asia, those sort of places, because people are concerned for their health. Um, the local thing was fascinating too, which is frustrating for me because, you know, um, if everyone buys local, well, they're not going to buy any export stuff, are they? We're going to be sending them. So, so, but I do get that, you know, that's something that we see here as well, that people are migrating back to um, fresh, real food and um, less processing, all those sort of things, once again, because they, they perceive that it's better for their health. They also want to support um, local producers, which is, which is great. Um, and then I guess the other thing is around the um, number of items on a shelf uh, and it seems that, you know, that, you know, as someone who, who sells into, into that trade uh, is a bit of concern. If you're not the number one or two, you know, where are you going to get, where are you going to end up? Um, and if you're not uh, making the grade, you'll be gone. So actually the ranging is going to be reduced, it would appear. So from a supermarketing point of view, that's something which I think uh, we'll see more and more of. So how that plays out will be really interesting. I thought it was a really interesting piece. And and Laura, as you say, we've seen a lot of these sort of think pieces looking at how shopping has changed, how shopper behavior has changed, both in the UK, in the US and in other countries. Um, This, I think, does a really nice job of sort of pulling some of these these trends together. And even though it's obviously focused on on the US, I think there are a lot of these sort of macro trends that that apply across a number of countries. Um, Like both of you, I loved the stat about oranges. It really made me want to see some of the latest sort of Cantel or Nielsen data on fresh produce sales in the UK, because um, I'd love to see whether we've seen a a similar level of uptick um, for orange sales in particular. And it did make me wonder whether part of it is about sort of having, um, as you say, sort of natural foods, unprocessed foods, but also foods that already had a reputation for immunity boosting. Um, You know, we've seen so many kind of companies try and position their products around immunity support in in the wake of, of COVID. Are these sort of products these um the, the, is, is fresh produce that you know has a long-standing reputation for having that functionality does that have a bit of an advantage um under these circumstances murray what's your second pick this week okay so my second pick um is about gen z so this is about the 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 generation which is born between uh, 1995 and uh, 2015. So these are the digital natives. They are they have grown up uh, never knowing anything other than the internet. 
And it's an article which um, uh, I, I picked up out of Food Navigator uh, by Oliver Morrison. Uh, and what it's saying is that Gen Z are not ready to eat lab-grown meat. Uh, so this was a study that was conducted in Australia. Um, and they asked a number of questions of, of that, that demographic about what they thought. And consider this is a, a significant part of the consumer base and certainly will be influential in the future um, because there were about 2 billion of them uh, and they are very well connected So um, with what's happening in the world. And uh, so some of the things they picked up out of this were that, um, I'll just quickly run through a few of these stats. So 17% rejected all alternatives, including cultured meat, saying that it was chemically produced and heavily processed. 11% uh, rejected all alternatives in favour of increased consumption of fruit and vegetables, um, saying they'd, they'd stick with a vegetarian diet. 35% uh, rejected cultured meat and edible insects, uh, but accepted plant-based alternatives because they sounded more natural. 28% uh, believed cultured meat was acceptable or possibly acceptable uh, if the technology could be mastered. And the fifth group, uh, around 9% accepted edible insects but rejected cultured meat as it was too artificial and not natural like insects. So um, I thought that was interesting. Um, the other points that they made was around the fact that they feel they're unsure whether uh, cultured meat is actually more environmentally sustainable. Um, and they described it as potentially resource consuming and not being environmentally friendly. I guess as a, as a food producer, I'm always wary about some of these things. And, um, and I like the fact that um, we go to a lot of trouble to, to produce a product that we're really proud of. Um, and it's done in a really respectful way. I, I'm a real supporter and believer in real food. Uh, and I think as long as it's done in a managed and ethical way, um, uh, we, can, we, can, we, can, um, we, can, we can get along together. But um, I think, yeah, I, I don't think anyone really likes the idea of uh, eating food out of, a, out of a lab. And I guess it's a little bit like the GMO debate, isn't it? Where, um, you know, we know there's some good science there that can actually help us. Uh, solve a lot of problems, but the connotations that go with it uh, mean that we, we're, we're too scared to go there. I was really fascinated by this article, partly because um, I'm currently writing a report on Gen Z um, in, in the context of grocery, so this immediately sparked my interest. And I, I think it's really interesting. This is obviously focused on um, Gen Z in, in Australia. And so I had a look at some research that came out um, a few months ago um, in the UK here about Gen Z's attitudes to foods. And that was a, a piece of research commissioned by the Food Standards Agency here. And I think to an extent it kind of echoes perhaps some of the um, reluctance around lab-grown mead. But um, certainly the, the message that came through from that piece of research here seemed to suggest that Gen Z actually were quite comfortable with the idea of having technology play a part in the food system. And they did, a, from, from what I gather, a, a qualitative rather than a quantitative study here. So I don't have any particular sort of um, stats to share. But what they wrote in this FSA report was this. Um, technological solutions feel plausible and sensible to Gen Z, matching their assumption that technology will play a significant role in the future. 
Um, there was a sense here also, um, an intuitive sense that technology will make food production quicker, easier and more environmentally friendly. Now, on the subject of lab-grown meat, this particular UK study said there was some openness to eating insects or lab-grown meat in absence of alternatives, but they do say this varied widely. So there were, were a group of sort of Gen Z consumers that kind of, uh, that they call conscious consumers who were particularly engaged perhaps on sort of environmental issues who were more likely to eat lab-grown meat than animal meat, but others did feel uncomfortable with the idea and felt that they would need to be strongly nudged, showing a preference for natural over fake. So I think it's just so, so fascinating when we think about this next generation that's coming through. And as you say, they're, they're digital natives. They're going to be so important to the future of our food system and their attitudes and the way they feel about um, different types of foods, but also um, different technologies that are potentially going to be playing a, a, a role in our food system is uh, is going to be absolutely critical. So I suspect we'll be seeing much more um, of this type of research to really try and help um, food producers kind of gauge where attitudes and, and, and behaviours are going. In fascinating stats uh, i was just going to say maria the, the article um that as you've uh, touched on there that where it finishes about environment and being able to convey to and i like that the term digital natives because it makes me feel really old when it's yeah they've, they've been grown up with the internet um you know how do these folks feel but you, you're right they're going to have to have something that conveys very quickly and easily what the environmental impact is or isn't compared to um naturally grown meat um and i guess that connection which didn't really come out in the article but i'm not sure if it was in the fsa report julia about you know even the a lot of the reports that i see is consumers do feel a huge amount of empathy with our farmers and want to keep connected with the communities as we've you know just chatted about local before and this whole corporate faceless organization producing lab-grown meat is as the article alludes to is that something really the next generation are comfortable to buy into so i i think there's a huge communications element within this isn't there about how do these big corporates make themselves look feel smaller and easily convey what the environmental impacts are or aren't and how that's different julia what's your second article this week so my second pick this week is from Sifted, and it's an article by Mimi Billing called Future Foods Are Not Made of Plants, They Are Made of Air. So we're kind of continuing our conversation about technology and um, alternative proteins as well, in a way, and, and see what kind of role they're going to play in the future. This particular article is about a Finnish startup called Solar Foods, which makes an alternative non-meat protein from electricity, water and now, this startup has got a fair bit of coverage in the past. We've also seen plenty of coverage of other, you know, so-called air protein companies. And I'm doing air quotes as I'm doing air protein. Um, but the reason Sifted is picking up the story now and checking in on this company is that it's sort of getting closer to launching its products onto the market. What closer 
to launch means in this context um, is actually part of the article as well. So we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. But there were a few things that stood out to me here. Um, first of all, what I thought was interesting in listening to the company, the executives at Solar Foods, talk about the potential they see for their protein, which is very versatile, um, it's sort of taste neutral, um, is that they are really not all that interested in using the protein they're creating to make alternatives to meat. There is that assumption, isn't there, that if you are in the alternative protein game, that ultimately what you want is to launch some kind of burger of, of some description. That is not what they're really all that interested in. They're looking at a much wider range of products that they can potentially use their protein to make or add their protein to, um, including granolas and baked goods. They have a partnership and in fact, some investment from a confectionery company as well. Um, and what they're saying is that they feel the meat alternatives market is pretty crowded now. So they are just less interested in, in playing in that and kind of coming to market with yet um, another um, burger. Their protein alternative is also a little bit more expensive. So there's some, some you know, uh, questions around um, cost effectiveness as well. The other thing the article focuses on is the regulatory approval process involved in getting new proteins like this to market. So I mentioned at the beginning that this is partly an article to do with looking at how they're going to try and bring the product to market. Um, well, so far they've got quite some time to go on this. The product hasn't yet been approved by EFSA, the European Food Safety Regulator, so even the journalist writing this article wasn't even able to try the protein um, for, for her article. Um, and the EFSA approval process, they say, can take up to 18 months compared with three to six months in some other countries such as the US which is a source of some frustration for them. They say, this company, Solar Foods, say they feel it's partly because of this lengthy approval process and this delay in getting innovation to market, that they feel Europe doesn't have quite the leadership position in food tech, for example, that it perhaps could have. So I was really interested in that, and I'd love to get your take on this, Murray, and, and get, give us a sense of, um, of how things are handled in New Zealand, because I think New Zealand has um, managed to sort of position itself as, as, as a country that really punches above its weight, not just in terms of exports, as you've talked about, but also when it comes to food innovation. Um, what's your sense of how quick it is to get innovation to market? And do you think these guys are right to feel a little bit frustrated with that kind of 18-month approval process? Uh, I, th I think they're, they, they're, they're rightfully aggrieved in just how long it takes. Innovation um, it, it does take time, uh, but I was really interested in the way that they had broken it down, you know, into, into a, a series of cycles. Uh, I think they talked about 30-month cycles, uh, and then they'd completed that step and then gone to the next one. Hey, these things, when you're in any startup, it never goes as fast as you want it to, and it always costs much more than you expect that it would. Um, that's just the nature of these things. But hey, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And look, I wish them well. And it's interesting that they've really admitted that it's not cheap, admitted that they're not going to play in the same space as everybody else. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's um, interesting. Uh, but I suspect it's going to be a long, hard battle, particularly when you're fighting some of the authorities because they, the bureaucrats tend to operate at a different pace to, uh, to any entrepreneur. 
Uh, what I uh, like from the article as well as you've uh, picked out, Julia, is about uh, protein being an ingredient. And we've seen that so much more, haven't we, about, you know, the, the thing that always springs to mind is Weetabix with protein. And, you know, you, you go get down um, various aisles and there's added protein. And I always think this is an opportunity for the meat category to be braver about, you know, good source of protein. Well, of course it is. But and, and I guess dairy to, to an extent, too, that we... we are we missing a trick in those sectors to be a bit more um, bullish and braver about the benefits of, of eating those categories when consumers are willing to pay more and they're going to have to if, the, if this ingredient costs to buy a breakfast cereal or whatever it may be, granola uh, with added protein? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really um, interesting question. I mean, the other thing I have to say, you know, especially in light of the conversation we had about sort of Gen Zs and and their attitudes towards um, technology and and, and how comfortable or not they might feel with some of these um, alternative proteins. I mean, I I totally understand why a a startup like this um, is frustrated with the length of the approval process. And I think those concerns about you know, what that means for, for Europe's leadership position, I think, are, are well made. On the other hand, from a consumer perspective, um, I think having that really long, robust approval process can also be a really important part of the story that is needed to kind of reassure consumers that um, they, they can feel safe buying into some of these alternative um, proteins as well. So I guess it's about sort of finding the right balance between something that does allow innovation to come to market in a timely fashion, but at the same time has the kind of regulatory backup that makes consumers feel really good about buying into um, some of these emerging categories. Laura, what's your second pick for us? My second pick this week is from The Spoon. It's Consumer Food Waste Innovation Report. And this is an exec summary of a a longer read that they've um, produced um, on the topic of waste. And I know, um, I don't know if if you both feel like me, but waste seems to come up in our uh, press almost on a weekly basis with a lot of big numbers in there. And it always feels, you know, a huge issue that we we know the industry has got, but how are we actually going to tackle it? And what I like about this article and and this exec summary was it gave you know a feel of the numbers which I'll run through in a second but it also uh, included some of the things that we could do uh, to help overcome some of the challenges and that isn't all just about the processing sector it's about consumers and their role within it so just just to to set the context uh, roughly 1.3 billion tons of edible food worldwide is wasted annually each year Um, and experts say this number will swell to 2.1 million tons uh, by 2030 Um, and these figures have well been known uh, in and out the food industry but until recently little has been done to curb the problem which hits every touch point in the food supply chain says the article Um, and it talks about in the developed world at least uh, as much of that focus over the last 12 months has been on the consumer kitchen and looking about how we can overcome some of the challenges which is responsible for most of food waste in the regions uh, of the more developed world predominantly North America and Europe. Um, The Spoon Report examines why food waste in the consumer kitchen um, and what new technologies and processes can be leveraged to fight waste and when you think about it you know 
the amount of consumers around the world we've all got different ways of of cooking and we've, we've talked about it on today's show you know different ways that we're now reacting in light of covid and we're shopping less but buying more and all these things how is this impacting you know when you get to the end of the week and open your fridge door and think oh well that's gone out of date or what am I going to do with it? Are we dropping it in the bin? Are we cooking it and making sure we pop it in the freezer? And I guess millions of us, billions of us are all making those individual decisions on a daily basis, which are impacting these figures. So the the report highlights a couple of things. One third of the foods waste um, that goes to waste annually in the US and Europe, uh, the majority is downstream, the terminology they use, and is it the consumer facing businesses and in the home? Um, and it talks about new technology and how, and something I really liked in this, how the refrigerator itself may be one of the single biggest contributors to food waste. And moving forwards, can appliance makers um, consider overhauling the appliance's entire design to help consumers fight food waste? And that's something that I hadn't even considered. And it's not nothing that, that I've picked up before in previous articles. Um, and it uh, profiles articles including Samsung, LG and other. Uh, looking about what they can do to help uh, overcome some of these waste challenges and provide solutions and it talks about solutions for fighting food waste will come from a a wide range of different players from these tech companies uh, areas of focus will look at smart appliances more enabled um, uh, food storage systems as well as meal planning and meal sharing apps Um, the article doesn't pull out anything from New Zealand, Murray. And I always think you guys down there are so much better with food. Is that me being naive? But are you guys more planned and look after stuff? Or, and it's just us uh, North Americans and Europeans dropping stuff in the bin at the end of the week. What, what can no, we learn? What do you reckon? I think it's the same everywhere. And the article does talk about um, more affluent countries, actually, are the ones that have the highest rate of food waste. And poorer countries, obviously, um, they look after everything, you know. And uh, you, you know, if you travel to third world countries, they eat everything, uh, whereas we bin it. The other thing is around, um, you know, expiry dates, best before, all that sort of thing. When in fact, uh, the simple sniff test will actually give you a fairly good indication as to, you know, how good that product still is. Um, and, and look, it struck me that that was huge. I mean, it was bigger than what I expected. And then when I thought about it, I thought, actually, that's only outside the farm gate as well. So if you actually come inside the farm gate, you'll find it's probably um, almost as big when you consider that people only want to eat apples of a certain size or shape or or whatever, or um, a cucumber at a certain shape or, you know, um, those sort of things. There's a huge amount of wastage which occurs before it even gets um, gets off the farm. So that was interesting. The other thing which I wonder a little bit about is that uh, you guys, I'm sure, have got these um, pre-prepared meal solutions. Um, We have my food bag here, um, I think Blue Apron in the States, things like that where um, chefs and that have put together a package and so you come home and you don't have to think, but it's all delivered, all the ingredients are there. And so actually when you produce that, uh, that meal, uh, it's done in such a way that there, there shouldn't really be any waste. So you're not stuck with a fridge full of ingredients, which you might use and then um, throw out later. And, and I think what's interesting is um, certainly when you look at the, the food waste debate here in the UK, but um, my sense is, it is something quite similar is, is happening in, in countries such as the US as well. 
So initially, a lot of the sort of consumer-focused communication was very much about how much money you waste if you have high levels of food waste. I think in, in recent months, that conversation or that narrative has turned much more on the environmental impact. And I think organizations like RAP are drawing a much more explicit line between how you behave around food waste in the home and your sustainability impact, your environmental footprint. So it's interesting that they've pulled out some of these stats. I, I definitely see that as part of a sort of wider movement to really not just make it about, hey, you're throwing away lots of money here and you could save, I think, £700 or something like that in the UK a year if you were better about you know food waste, but to actually say, if you care about the environment probably one of the single best things you can do to improve the impact you're having is to waste um, less food. The other point I thought was interesting, and, and Laura, you picked up on this as well, is the whole point about refrigeration and sort of next generation fridges. Um, I think that's fascinating. It'd be really interesting to see what the tech companies come up with. What I haven't seen quite as much yet, and I, I do wonder whether we're going to start seeing this a little bit more in the debate around food waste, is, you know, it's fine to have an expensive new fridge that does all sorts of fancy things to help you with food waste. But we, of course, we do have a massive problem with food poverty as well, poverty in general. Um, and when people talk about appliance poverty, which is simply not having decent refrigeration, sometimes no refrigeration, no fridge at all, no freezer at all. And freezers, you know, frozen is, is such a great way to really help reduce food waste. So many households don't have access to that, or they only have incredibly old, inefficient appliances. Um, I really hope that we're going to start seeing more of a debate around um, the kinds of appliances Never mind the next gen stuff, but the basic appliances that need to be in people's homes that social and private landlords need to be supplying to um, to tenants to make sure they have the basic equipment to, yes, reduce food waste, but also be able to get the most out of the money they're spending on their food. Murray, it's been great uh, to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you for bringing two really interesting um, articles that I think made us look at issues we wouldn't normally be, be looking at. So I, I think you've definitely broadened our horizons and I'm sure you'll have broadened our listeners' horizons as well. Thank Fantastic. you. Thanks for having me. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.